For a long time now, as we've been chanting the refuges and precepts every morning, for those of you who have, uh, I've had the honor of being with for more than 20 years, I've been wanting to give a talk on the refuges and the precepts and what they really mean for us in, in this day and age, you know, 2,600 years after the time of the Buddha. So... Uh, Maybe some of you have come to your own wisdom, your own understanding about it all through these years as you've continued to chant and come closer to that depth in your heart that can give reverence. And so I want to go through uh, the various things that we do and say in the early mornings, Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa. For example, what does that mean? And how can we translate that in our lives today to really help us feel a sense of being protected by refuge, going to refuge? So, um, paying homage. That's the first part of our practice when we uh, when we chant those words namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa so, sometimes different intonations different ways we um, express that in kind of a sing-songy way in each tradition but namo tassa means homage or honor Homage or honor. It's like I'm giving homage, honor, to the Blessed One, Bhagavato. Bhagavato means the Blessed One. So during the time that the historical Buddha lived, he was really considered blessed. He was really considered like what we might say in our time, you know, a saint, a person with a liberated heart, a heart that was freed from greed, hatred, and delusion. And he not only talked about it, you know, and gave advice to everyone about it, everyone who was around him, but he also showed it in his actions and in his speech and in the ways that he uh, gave himself over to teaching for the rest of his life after he became fully enlightened, fully purified. And you had to go through a lot of hardships to do that, of course, like, like we do ourselves. There's a story uh, about the Buddha. He was walking along a path and someone saw him and uh, was really impressed by the sparkliness of his being and by the regality and the nobility of the way he held himself as he walked. And so this person stopped uh, the Buddha and asked him, are you, are you a, a saint? Uh, and the Buddha said, no. He said, are you a celestial being? And the Buddha said, no. And he asked him again, are you a god? And the Buddha said, no. And then he said, well, what are you anyway? And the Buddha answered, I am awake. I am awake. I'm awake to how things are, what life is really all about. And understanding that deeply, I'm, I'm just paraphrasing him and what he meant there by understanding, by my own understanding of his life. He said, I understand life deeply and I'm living in alignment with it so that I don't harm others and I don't harm my own karmic stream anymore. And so that's what Bhagavato means, the blessed one, one who is really blessed with that kind of knowledge, that kind of understanding, that kind of true integration of compassion and wisdom 
is not just talking about it and saying that this is what my teacher has told me or taught to me. He's saying that I'm living it and knowing it at the same time. So Bhagavato Arahato, what does that mean? The word Arahant actually, when we, when we refer to Arahants, that means a worthy one. Those who are worthy of respect because of what they've done through their lives uh, to purify their hearts and minds. So Arahato means worthy one, means enlightened one. Fully purified from greed, hatred and delusion. Nothing left behind. Done is what had to be done in one's life. And the last is, in the paying homage, is Samma Sambuddhasa. That means one who has become fully enlightened by one's own efforts, by understanding for oneself. And this is a, this is a Buddha, someone who takes that up as multi-lifetimes, multi-world cycles of lifetimes, of learning and understanding through experience. So paying homage is a heart-based attitude of reverence and respect for all of that. So when we chant that, it, it, it can have deep meaning for us. Now most of us weren't born in uh, a culture where we first came to know the teachings of the Buddha. It's not in our heritage, usually. It's not in our genes, in our blood. Uh, But actually, we've come to know it in in a way that's really wonderful because the teachings have come to us from uh, India, from Burma, from Sri Lanka and Thailand, from Laos and Vietnam, from Thailand, uh, Taiwan, also China. So uh, sometimes when it comes from that far away, it can seem like the teachings are really distilled. But actually, because of so many great translators of our time, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, uh, Analayo, who's um, become very well-known lately for his uh, erudite translations of the Buddhist teachings, are bringing us um, teachings that are so wonderfully um, old and original and also comparing them to teachings like uh, from the Chinese Agamas and the, the old texts from Burma and India and bringing them all together and saying what of all of this um, is similar so that that's what we can present to life now. So it isn't about uh, just paying reverence because everybody else does, as they might have done, you know, in Burma. I mean, actually, there are times when I've practiced in Burma where it's a little embarrassing, but it's the way that sometimes Upandita gives admonition to, um, to the Burmese people who come to practice, and they compare the foreigners, he, he would compare the foreigners to the Burmese who were practicing. And he says, um, these people come from thousands of miles away to really understand the Dhamma in their hearts through their practice. They don't just come and keep putting gold leaf over a Buddha, you know, or um, keep the practices of, of generosity or giving, which is really, really powerful thing that we can do, powerful practice we can do in the Dharma. But he said, these people are sitting here, you know, in this hot country with food they've never eaten or not eaten much. I mean, most of the food in Burma is like oil, really. (laughs) 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 Luckily, you know, I've attended retreats um, at Sayadaw Pandita's monastery where he really takes great care with the food has an organic garden and things like that. So he would say, um, you know, when you grow up with the, with the Dharma here in this country, it's like 
the lions in the Shwedagon, or the, you know, those, um, do you know about the Shwedagon pagoda? The beautiful pagoda in Burma that, uh, it, it's so astounding when you walk there. It's like all of these, many, many pagodas actually, that different monasteries have built through years, and uh, on the outside there is there are these protective lions, and they, they face outwardly to protect the, the Shwedagon Pagoda. It's, it could be one of the wonders of the world. It's so beautiful. And he said to us, you know, if you, if you just come here just to kind of put the gold leaf on the Buddhas or to pay respects by bringing flowers and just make your bows, it isn't enough. You're like the lions who sit outside the Shwedagon and face outside. <coughs> But when you come to do your practice, it's like you face inside. And that's really, really a challenging thing to do, as we all know, to come here and face ourselves. And so he would kind of, in the, you know, in the Asian Burmese way, a little bit um, uh, admonish. And so then, you know, they would, we would all try together to work a little harder in our practice to show up more um, awake at three o'clock in the morning when we had to be in the hall. So you guys are lucky. (laughs) Six o'clock, wow, that's really laid back. Three o'clock in the morning, you had to start walking at 3.30 in the hall. So... Paying reverence uh, to the Buddha. This is a heart-based attitude of of real respect for what someone so long ago did to give an example to all of us that as a human being like we all are, this can be done. This can be done. It's possible to purify the heart of greed, hatred, and delusion and uh, lift the veils of (coughs) ignorance up so that we can see deeply inside the wisdom that naturally lies there through our practice. So it's recognition, appreciation of someone or something we consider worthy uh, of our time to receive advice from, to receive guidance from, to be able to uh, take this higher step in our spiritual growth. It's said that This understanding of really paying homage, really recognizing what's worthy uh, of our efforts and our energy to recognize is the first step that we need to take. It's the preliminary condition for spiritual growth. So sometimes we, we come to the Dharma with an understanding or a kind of... Um, false understanding of that we we already know we already know this much Um, and there's some pride involved there there's some there's a bit of spiritual arrogance that may be there I remember once when I talked about bowing in a three month course and how important it was for me to bow um, to the Buddha that I, I wasn't born with the Buddha in my life when I was first brought into this world. I I was practicing uh, with my mother under Catholicism, which also I greatly, still greatly revere. And so when I would bow to the Buddha, at first I'd wonder, you know, what am I doing? (laughs) I'm just kind of following what everybody else does. And that that didn't feel true to me. So I thought, okay, I'm going to have my own way of looking at it. When I bring my hands together, I'm bringing my heart, my body, and what I call my spirit together. Just bringing everything together and putting it here next to my heart. And so when I would bow, I would feel like I'm emptying out everything I know in that moment. And uh, emptying out everything I know about anything. And just taking in what I needed to take in from the experience that was opening to me in the moment and the teachings that were being given to me in the Dharma talks or the places where I learned 
um, about the suttas or about the Abhidhamma or uh, any of the teachings like that. So it would break this kind of hard shell of pride that I would have about, well, I know. I I know enough already. I'm just kind of, um, you know, being here and taking my place in the hall and whatever drops in will drop in. But it really took also more than that. It took emptying myself of what I thought I knew and just letting it be fresh all the time. I love the way Manindra would put it, my first teacher in the Dhamma. If um, somebody would talk to him about how where he was on the path, he would never... Uh, he would never say, you know, he, he was this or that, or he attained this or that. He would just always say, my path is not yet finished. Like he had more to understand, more to learn. My path is not yet finished. So bowing gives us a sense of pouring out our pride, pouring out even our spiritual arrogance. We can have spiritual arrogance about a lot of things, about how many retreats we've attended (laughs) or how many um, teachers we've been with or um, in the Tibetan tradition it's sometimes it's like how many bows we've done recently I uh, there's a Lama in in my community Lama Gyaltsin and I love having a Lama it's like having a Lama in my hometown and um it's a real privilege to have somebody so pure-hearted <coughs> nearby. And so sometimes I attend his teachings and just to be in, his, in the pure-hearted presence of him. And so recently um, there was this advertisement that they put out to do a certain practice uh, called Chenrezi practice. So I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to do that. It, it entailed a lot of bowing, which I had never done before, you know, that much bowing, those full prostrations. How many of you have done full prostrations in the... A year of it. A year of that? Wow, good for you, yeah. Well, real full prostrations with all the points of your body hitting the ground. And, and so as I was doing that, I, I really appreciated the, the kind of feeling that one had of emptying out all the time, just emptying out. And it, actually, there came a time when I felt like, I don't know, if i got to go home. I don't know if I can still do this, you know. <laughs> Luckily, the Lama was on this side, and his main translator was on that side, and I was kind of ashamed to give up, you know. <laughs> um, but bowing, bowing is a way to really feel your homage, your heart-based respect. Uh, if you can do it, I mean, maybe it's just putting your hands together or maybe it's just putting your hands to your heart and what can you let go of yourself at that time? What is it for you that helps you to pay homage for that spiritual growth, to break the hard shell of pride and self-centeredness and come to a place of humility? They say it's an indispensable step on the spiritual path is to be able to pay homage to something greater than oneself. Whatever it might be, it might be the Buddha, it might be nature itself, it might be Christ. So it's true respect for those who have been by their example a possibility to go beyond what we already know to go beyond what we've already realized. And if we have people like that in our midst, we're lucky. And I mean, sometimes it's not even somebody in the Dharma. You know, it's, it's the grandma next door or the, um, or the child who's, you know, out of the mouth of babes comes these wonderful wise words. So just remembering an example, um, when my eldest daughter was really young and uh, I brought my three children to America from the Philippines, I was asking them at, at Christmas time, we were alone for the first time, 
and I was asking them alone as a family and I asked them well what what do you want to be when you grow up you know and so I I recorded it it was our first Christmas together in that way and so uh, the youngest one said she wanted to be a nurse a nurse (laughs) and so I was just kind of recording their words and then my son I'm sorry to say I can't remember what he said I have to listen again Um, but he must have said something like a fireman or something like that but then when I asked my eldest daughter and this stayed with me for a long time it's it's about learning from the mouth of babes I said well Rona what would you like to be when you grew up and she said I want to be me and I thought that was kind of not such a good answer then you know so I said well, well, what else? I mean, really? You want to be you? And she said, Mom, if I'm not me, who else will be? And I thought, you know, that's really good. I still I remember that, even now. Uh, right, it's true. And also, when we're around people, you know, great people live in our times. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, we're so lucky to have somebody like that live in our time. And our own teachers. I've I've had the grace of knowing uh, Sayadaw Pandita, who died recently. He was someone who, he was the person who wrote the book In This Very Life. And I attended many retreats, and um, so did uh, Bonnie with Sayadaw Pandita. So In This Very Life, that book he read was meaning to tell us all of us can, in this very life, know the truth of how it is. We all can have the, we all have the possibility of awakening fully. And that's why he named that book what he named it. And sometimes, I must admit, I would have to borrow his faith in me in order to keep going. But he was one person in my life, not the only one, but if you have one person in your life who believes that you can transform yourself, you're very lucky. And we should really treasure that person. Because it isn't a normal thing for an average human being to have that kind of person in one's life. I mean, I believe that for all of you. Do you believe it for yourselves? I mean, that's a real question. And so we had Deepama. I never met Deepama, but how many of you read the book about Deepama, Need Deep in Grace? She was a person just like most of us. A householder. She had a lot of loss in her life, like we all have in different ways. Um, She was very ardent. You know, there was a time when she crawled. Uh, she was at the Mahasi Monastery, and she crawled from on her hands and knees, it said. Uh, I've heard from reputable people that she did do that, to hear the teachings when she was very sick. And um, she became well through the teachings. She actually uh, really attained to a much higher degree than even her teacher. Her teacher was Manindraji, one of my teachers. And Manindra said with a lot of um, confidence and pride in her that she went further than Manindraji in her practice. And so there's a story that Joseph tells about Deepama that... um, he was together with Deepam, Joseph Goldstein, my co- our colleague. And when uh, Deepama said to him, you should sit for three days. And Joseph said, yes, I have sat for three days. And, and Deepama said, no, I mean really three days, just sit. And you start at the beginning and you sit the whole time through, three days. You don't get up, you don't eat, you don't go to the bathroom, you don't. And, and um, Joseph said he just kind of laughed. And Deepama looked at him and said, don't be lazy. You know, it was like she totally expected him to do that. 
Now, I'm not asking that of you, but... (laughs) But I was, uh, a few years ago, I was with Deepa, who's Deepama's daughter, and I went to visit her in India. And I said, what was the most amazing thing, one of the most amazing things you saw about your mother? And she said, well, when I was a little girl, we, went, we were in Burma, and uh, she went to sit in her room, so we had to be quiet. And so there was a, her aunt and uh, Deepama and Deepa, the daughter. And so they were together, and Manindraji was nearby. That was Deepama's teacher. And so Manindraji was giving her uh, instructions to take up a certain practice. So she did. And Deepa, her daughter, said she sat in the room and she didn't get up for three days. She just sat there and she did her practice. And she did this really far out concentration practice. I I don't really know exactly what it was, but Deepa said she didn't get up to go to the bathroom. She didn't get up to drink water. She didn't get up to eat. She really just put her mind to what she had to put her mind to, and she sat there. So after I heard that story from Deepa, I thought, wow, Joseph's really telling the truth, (laughs) you know? That was really what Deepa wanted, Deepama wanted him to do. I don't think he ever did that, though, actually. (laughs) So also, people like Manindra, he truly believed that people like us, myself, Bonnie, everybody, could really transform, that we could really start the purification process to enter the stream and to understand the first path of enlightenment, to really experience that where greed, hatred, and delusion begin to be uprooted. Not uprooted yet, but just the beginning parts of it. And from that time on, we become really safe in the Dharma. Can't go backwards anymore, they say. So going for refuge, it's really a surrendering uh, of our doubt in ourselves. It's It's an act of faith. It's a surrendering our ignorance and delusion. It's a determination. It's a kind of determination that we can realize what is greater than ourselves. So it's a sign, they say it's a sign of a truly developed human mind that is able to recognize that one can be more developed than we already are. You know, when you have that humility and that ability to do that. So going for refuge can involve a change, a real change of heart and mind. It's really a shift when we go for refuge. Um, It's the consequences of changing a heart and mind that doesn't have faith in oneself to moving towards or actually entering into a place of having that deep faith that we can really transform our lives. So in English, refuge is a place where people find safety from danger. That's kind of one of the first descriptions of refuge, where people find safety from danger. But another description is an area like a wildlife refuge to protect animals or plants that are seen as endangered and um, to have a place of safety there. So in the teachings of the Buddha, going for refuge, sarana means refuge, sarana. It includes both these meanings. Going for refuge is a way of protecting ourselves from the dangers of greed, hatred, and delusion that come up in our hearts and from maybe the hearts around us. So we surround ourselves with people who inspire us. We can surround ourselves with people who give us a sense of safety because they themselves portray that, uh, the giving up of harming through our speech and behavior. 
So we go to a, a place of refuge like this, where we take, for example, the refuges and precepts every day. We're really intending, making that intention all the time, to, to protect ourselves, to protect others. And it's also meaning the safeguarding of what is most valuable within ourselves. So it's not just being among others who would protect us, but it's safeguarding what we find, what's so valuable in ourselves. And we really have to reflect on that because most of the time we're not used to looking at that in ourselves, what's valuable in ourselves. Usually in our society, we have the habit of looking at what's wrong with ourselves. But here in the Dhamma, we, we are starting to understand through our own experience what is the goodness that my heart holds and how can I <coughs> keep protecting that? You know, the goodness of not harming uh, when we take all the precepts, the goodness of knowing the moments of compassion that we have in our hearts, the moments of connecting with another through loving kindness, the moments of seeing... Uh, Wisdom arise. You know, when, when we're feeling awful about this moment of pain, and we, then we realize and see the impermanence of it. And just seeing deeply into a moment of wisdom like that. So going for refuge uh, can mean those two things. Protecting what is valuable inside of ourselves, safeguarding that, and it means to go to a place where we can feel really safe from the, from the outer dangers so that we can really cultivate the inner qualities. So going to retreats like this, joining um, something like Common Ground, you know, that beautiful community that holds us all in that kind of respect. So in the time of the Buddha, going for refuge began with people who when they heard the teachings were so moved that they declared their confidence in the Buddha and in the Dhamma that he expounded. They were willing to receive more teachings. They were willing to practice under his guardianship and under the guardianship of those other beautiful men and women, nuns and monks, who were continuing to uphold Uh, the teachings and to offer them to people around. In some of those people, they experienced awakening to different degrees and some to the fullest degree. And that became the third refuge. The third refuge is the Sangha. There's a taking refuge in the Buddha, the human being who uh, gave us the example that human beings like ourselves can be totally transformed. Uh, Taking refuge in the Dhamma, the Dhamma means the teachings that uh, help us to kind of realize that transformation. And taking refuge in the Sangha, those who became fully awakened through their own efforts, those who realized, understood, and um, kind of held the Four Noble Truths in their very beingness and life. So these three together, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, they really represent what we call the three treasures. The three treasures, the three gems, sometimes it's expressed that way, because of the great value that people found in them, realized in them. So sometimes the triple, triple refuge refers to Um, this external refuge uh, of the historical Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, of the practitioners who followed in his footsteps that I just spoke about. And other times the triple refuge refers to the inner qualities that give rise to these inner capacities we all have. This is the internal refuge. So the internal refuge is when we ourselves, through our own practice, awaken in those bit-by-bit ways where we're not so wrapped around a me or a mine or an I, or we're not so wrapped around, even in the Dhamma, we're not so wrapped around 
attaining something, attaining. Sometimes there, there's this whole thing going around about um, you know being a stream enterer, being having first level of attainment of the Buddhist path, the sotapanna, and then a, uh, a once returner, um, sakadagami, and a non-returner, an anagami, and an arahant, which means a fully enlightened being. And people get attached to actually and very identified with those kinds of understandings and those kinds of um, uh, practices, you know, progress of insight. I like to call it the process of insight. Because we're not really attaining anything. We're really, what we're doing is we're purifying the mind and the heart. We're really letting go of greed, hatred, delusion, and the identification with it. So, um, you know, recently a book has come out, a very important book of our time, I believe. It's called The Manual of Insight, written by Mahasi Sedao. And he is our grandfather teacher, the teacher of Manindra, the teacher of uh, Upandita, the teacher of um, Shwayumin, who is the teacher of Utejaniya. Some of you know of these, these people. And he wrote this incredible book about how one begins the path and one goes through all these stages of insight and then comes to realize uh, the heart and mind of a fully awakened being. And he talked about it through his own experience and through what he saw in others, what they went through. So it's not, he isn't, he wasn't just copying the words of others from, say, the Visuddhimagga, the path of purification that was written uh, many years ago, 500 years after the time of the Buddha, actually. But through his own experience, he wrote that. And recently, uh, it was published by Wisdom Publications. You'll be able to get it uh, now online. And it was a book that uh, Steve Armstrong and myself and others uh, translated. And it took 16 years to do the translation and the editing of it. And finally, it's out. It really shows all the stages of insight in just in such exquisite uh, detail. The danger of that is we can become uh, so kind of attached to attaining those insights and realizing them in a way that we develop a sense of self around that, a spiritual sense of self around that. So if you, if you, it's going to be one of those kind of popular books of our time right now because um, it expounds all those insights very, very clearly in the most detailed way than anyone has ever put in writing before. So be careful when you read it that you're not thinking, oh, okay, yeah, I've attained this already. I've attained that already. In fact, um, Steve just did an interview on Dan Harris's what does he call it? 10% happier? Mm-hmm. And as, as Steve was kind of naming various of those watermarks of those uh, insights, even Dan Harris was saying, oh yeah, I, I obtained that one already. I, you know. And it's, you, we can really fool ourselves unless we have a teacher. Uh, so just be careful when you read it. It's called The Manual of Insight. So this internal refuge is our own experience. It's, it's really uh, living that, those insights in a way where we truly understand them to, to the, the deepest of their depths. And it's not just having one little experience and thinking, oh yeah, got it. It's really, when you have a teacher who's really strict and really precise, that teacher wants to know that that experience of impermanence or the impersonal nature of reality or the unsatisfactory nature of reality is known over and over and over and over and over again. Watches you for years to see that that's really true in your practice. So this is the internal refuge, is our own experience. And when the Buddha in his last days, he said this, You should live being your own refuge 
with no one else as your refuge. You should live with the Dharma as your refuge, with no other refuge. We must, that was the end of the quote, and he was saying, you, we must, each of us, walk our path in our own way and let it unfold in its own unique way and understand all of those deep insights uh, truly, deeply for ourselves. It's having faith in, in the possibility for us to experience those in our own way. When I first come, came to the Dhamma, Manindra said, don't read anything, just practice. I couldn't read, I didn't have time to read. I was raising three children anyway. So uh, he said, it's better not to read, not to compare yourself with anything. But nowadays there's so much to read that actually can guide us, but we have to be careful. There are people around who even proclaim themselves, you know, to have this attainment or that attainment, or have said that, um, you know, my teacher told me this and my teacher told me that. But that's an absolute no-no in our tradition for our teachers to give us any confirmation at all. Just just remember that. Uh, That's really inappropriate. And, And it's even more inappropriate to proclaim ourselves. So it's better to say, like Manindra says, my path is not yet finished because until you're an arahant and you can say like the Buddha said, you know, self-proclaimed understanding of the nature of life, then we have to be, um, just see for ourselves. So the internal refuge is a really important refuge. It protects us from being uh, kind of deluded about our practice. It protects us from being arrogant about our practice. Spiritual arrogance is so subtle that we really have to watch out for it. So we become the Dharma in our lives. Non-harming flows through our lives naturally, um, through our beingness naturally. We have the ability in our lives to hold, uh, when we have true refuge, we can hold the relational part very naturally, you know, where we don't want to harm others, we don't want to harm our own karmic stream. We really take refuge in the Dharma and in the teachings of non-harming, which I'll speak about in just a moment. So the internal refuge in the Sangha also encompasses our own capacity for goodness, for kindness, for compassion, for generosity. When we, receive, when we see the results of it in others, you know, and we can recognize it in ourselves. So just like when, when we're around someone who really inspires us, and then it, it doesn't have to be some great person. It can be our next-door neighbor or, you know, a child um, or an elder, an elder who's really just accepting things as they are. So we might hear or see something that that person does, and, and it's a reflection of our own heart somehow. So I'm wanting you to start reflecting on your own goodness when you see that in yourself, and when you see, yeah, I'm a, I am a good person. There's kindness that's coming out of my heart. I care for others. I have compassion. And to notice those moments when they're there. When we notice them in others, it inspires us to notice them in ourselves instead of comparing ourselves. So even if you can pick up just a little bit of that mirroring, that's really wonderful. So we begin to have confidence in the triple gem, in our ability to rely on the external and the internal support that we can get from taking refuge. It protects us from destructive behavior. And definitely when we're not being nice to others, we're 
we're having destructive behavior towards ourselves because we are really feeding greed, hatred, and delusion, and that is kind of planting more seeds of that in our mind stream. So, sustaining us in difficult times, this is what having refuge, taking refuge, can do for us. I take refuge a lot of times during the day. A lot of times. And I may not say it in words, but taking refuge in something that's greater, taking refuge in potential for whatever's happening now can be different. Now I might see, maybe I could see life through a different lens than the lens I'm presently looking through. So my commitment to deepening my confidence in the Buddha, Dhamma, and, strong, and, and Sangha is stronger every time I can take that next step that's difficult to take. And that's when we know that taking refuge is really working for us. When we can't go any further, but we do. We just can take that next step. When life seems so hard that, I don't know about you, but haven't there been times in your life when you go to sleep at night and you say, well, if I don't wake up in the morning, it's totally okay with me. <laughs> right? Okay. Yes. Yes, I, I do that sometimes in my life. You know, I, I'm not going to do anything about it, but I just feel like, okay, that would be all right. You know, hopefully I'll get to some heaven realm, but maybe it won't, you know. Um, so... Taking refuge is really important. So whatever that means to you, taking refuge in the Buddha can mean to you taking refuge in your highest potential. It doesn't have to be the historical Buddha. Taking refuge in the Dhamma can mean taking refuge in the teachings that you can practice, you can understand, and you're open to understanding those that you don't understand yet. That's taking refuge in the Dhamma. And taking refuge in the sanghas, taking refuge in those around us who are good examples of of these two, of having the potential and being open to learning, to deepening in the Dhamma. So what does the practice of of taking the precepts mean? Uh, Bonnie explained some of that very beautifully last night. I love the way that um, this practice of sila, sila is taking the five precepts, and uh, the five precepts are living with a heart of non-harming, not harming with our speech or our behavior. And it's said in the Dhamma that it promises the bliss of blamelessness. And I love the way it says that, because usually we're, we're blaming ourselves, or when we see others that break the precepts, you know, the blame goes outwards. So when we see the bliss of blamelessness, it it means when we see people that are breaking the precepts, we have compassion for them. So we're not blaming them. And when we look at it in ourselves, we're not blaming ourselves, but we see a place where that can be purified, that we can work on more. This is a place where we have difficulty to honestly admit it. So somebody said to me recently um, that um, because I I admit when I feel things, you know, and uh, I admit when I I feel uh, upset or angry or sad or um, feel some aversion to what's going on. I mean, I'm I have uh, a lot to go on my path, too. And this person said, oh, you're not a very good um, model for the Dhamma. (laughs) And I thought I was a very good model for the Dhamma, because (laughs) at least I'm honest about what I'm feeling. I'm not shoving it under a rug or ignoring it or pretending I'm better than that. I really am saying, yeah, it's true. You know, this is an area I I really need to pay attention to. And it hurts. It's really painful. Yeah. 
I think I have to say that per, that person said I'm not a poster child for <laughs> the Dhamma. <laughs> that was an admission, wasn't it? So, so when we can't have those moments of the bliss of blamelessness, then we're haunted by shame or guilt. You know, I don't feel good about feeling that way sometimes, but I, at least I, I'm not ignoring it, right? Because that's just covering stuff with delusion. So at least the delusion's not there. Now I just have to face the aversion. Okay. So it's quite liberating to incline one's life towards non-harming and come to believe that our own goodness can be even greater than that. That our inclination towards goodness and our willingness to overcome the difficulties and the hardships that we experience in our own hearts, the pain of those of greed, hatred, and delusion still being there, that we're willing to, to face it, overcome it, to work with it. So we undertake these trainings to train the mind and the heart to be free from that. Um, as Bonnie was saying last night, we take, undertake the training to refrain from taking life, causing that kind of harm, from taking what is not offered, from um, participating in sexual activity uh, that harms others. This is a householder's uh, um, precept. And here we, we abstain from sexual activity altogether in a retreat. But during our home life, we abstain from that kind of activity that not only is kind of directly hurting one person, you know, against that person's will, but maybe it's um, hurting a relationship that you've, on- you're, you've honored, you've made your vows to. So it's also indirectly, how are we hurting it's refraining from false speech. Um, here we have the help of noble silence. People feel, when they leave a place like this, feel very purified just from not having to talk and say the things that we regret. <coughs> well, we still have to hear what we're talking about inside, so that's hard too. So refraining from false speech. One time Upandita said, to uh, a group of us who are practicing that how can you realize the truth if you can't speak the truth? So really encourage me to be really profoundly, precisely truthful. And to refrain from taking intoxicants that cloud the mind. So, uh, and that make us heedless, where we, we can't think with the best kind of clarity. So there's another way that you can look at this and it can be the opposite, the reverse, to understand that the result of this training when we refrain from is that we, what we create is we cultivate compassion to protect all of life, all people, all creatures, all living beings, uh, even the earth we might think of as a living being to protect the earth. And when we take the second precept to uh, refrain from what is not being offered, what we do is we realize our sufficiency. We realize that we have enough. We even have enough to practice so we can share with others. As the Buddha said, if beings knew what I knew about the practice of generosity, we would not let a meal go by without sharing it with others. The third one has to do with um, cultivating wisdom and responsibility about the use of our sexual energy, respecting our commitments to others. And the fourth one about speech has to do with cultivating harmonious speech, deep listening, truthful speech. So someone said, I don't know where this culture came from, but... You know, we have two ears and and one mouth, so we need to listen twice as much as we speak. 
I thought that was really good advice when I heard it. And the last one, to refrain from intoxicants that cloud the mind, it means discerning even in refined ways what causes the mind to be unclear. So, like a time of practice like this, you know, we get really sensitive. I don't know about you, but um, I was offered probably by Patrice a beautiful chocolate bar on the table there, and so I I took, uh, with gratitude, took some today. And as I was about to take the other piece, I realized that my mind had already become a little bit um, energetic and not as quiet. And so I wanted that piece of chocolate, but I really paid attention to what the mind was doing, so I put it down. And, you know, that's a very powerful act for me, (laughs) to put a piece of chocolate down. So even in those refined ways to look at, you know, how are we treating our bodies that affect the mind? So to come from a place of accountability and responsibility, we follow these precepts not because it's out of requirement, because it's because they lead to the alleviation of suffering in ourselves and for others. So these precepts are prescriptions of respect for living our lives with respect towards our own karmic stream and towards others. It's about our relationship in the world and it's all also about the basis for really cultivating wisdom. When the Buddha was invited to various places to offer the Dhamma during his time, he would first, in many cases, not all, but he would first give the teachings of sila, or living in harmony, the precepts, and he would offer the precepts. When you go around places, Thailand, Burma, Sri Lanka, um, you will hear the, the chanting of the precepts. And here, I hear it when you were chanting, it's like really good and loud, you know. I, I really, when I heard it, it was like boom. Wow, you guys are really into the precepts. <laughs> And you don't hear it that loud all the time, right, Bonnie? Yeah, it's Yeah, it's pretty... <laughs> Sometimes it's pretty soft, even when you're in big groups of, um, you know, a hundred people or more. But it's, it's really... There's a lot of vigor in life, a lot of intention in that. Yeah, to refrain from causing harm, to take refuge. And so the Buddha gave that as the first of the teachings... Uh, the teachings in living in harmony, coming from compassion, because this is the basis. This is the fertile soil for wisdom to grow in. If we don't have this as a basis, it doesn't grow. Wisdom doesn't grow very well, very much. It it can just come out of our mouths, and maybe it's quite intellectual, quite mental. But coming from our hearts, coming from a true place of non-harming and from a real integrated place, that's, that's a big difference there. So really to develop, when you, when you say the precepts, really put your heart into it. You know, you're understanding that there is this willingness to really refrain from harming, from harming your own karmic stream, from harming others. So from here, the wisdom teachings can grow so I'd like to end um, in giving homage also to my teacher. One of my teachers, Seda Upandita, was known as a very one of the most um, powerful Dharma teachers in Burma. And this is the poem that he wrote in the first retreat that I was at in 1985, the first month-long retreat with him. And so he's, he said this in his Burmese Pali way, but uh, a friend of mine translated it to make it rhyme a little bit. It's really beautiful. Adorned with a garland of giving, feeling joy and dignity with kind living, birth only in states of clarity, great beauty results with integrity. Adorned with the fragrance of virtuous activity, for others a care and sensitivity, 
birth only in states of contentment, a heart removed of the thorns of resentment. Adorned with the sweetness of tranquility, soft rapture from a life of simplicity, birth only in states of calm peace, mental turbulence and distraction all cease. Adorned with the brightness of clear insight, the true nature of the world is seen right, birth only in states of ease and happiness, a mind of wise discernment and openness. The three poisons of wrong view, conceit and craving no longer hinder or cause inner tightening. Vow deeply to develop the true way, then adorned in your heart, freedom will lay. So let's sit for a moment with that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.